What's going on, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Hedging Screens podcast. As always, I'm your host, Zach Cronin. I'm thrilled that y'all would choose to spend some time here with me today. I hope everybody is doing well mentally, physically, and emotionally. I'm not doing too bad myself. Had to bust out the flannel one time, feeling a little grungy today. We got a bunch to talk about on this episode today. NFL playoffs are beginning, and this has this playoff field this year is absolutely stacked and I'll get into that shortly we're also going to talk about the injury to my MVP frontrunner Kevin Durant if my camera ever decides to focus I'm also I've been really keen on talking about the Toronto Raptors recently because they are a fascinating team in almost all of the worst ways Um, so yeah we're going to get on with all of that shortly um, yeah, I guess just to begin, we're going to go ahead, we're going to jump right into the NFL playoffs. So as of this past weekend, oh, by the way, DeMar Hamlin is awake. He is back in Buffalo, continuing his recovery. I am so, so happy for that young man that he is healthy as he can be, I guess. Uh, I haven't really read too far into the details of his rehab, but all I know is that he is back in Buffalo and continuing to recover. I think the last time we spoke, he was still asleep. Um, He had not yet woken up. I believe it was on Thursday he woke up, and this guy, this fucking guy, the first thing he asked doctors when he woke up was, who won? Who won? He absolutely has that dog in him, and they explained to him that it was Damar Hamlin. Who had won? He had won the game of life. I guess that if if I had to um, speculate on the situation, I, he probably has no recollection of what happened, and he probably just thought that like he got knocked unconscious. And so you know, <clears throat> I mean, shit like that happens. I guess maybe that's what he was thinking in his mind. But yeah, like the the fact that the NFL postponed the game and went through everything to ensure that this um that this you know that they handled this situation situation correctly. And also shout out to the players union as well for making sure that the NFL followed the situation correctly. They wound up adjusting the seating going by win percentage as opposed to total wins because the bills and the Bengals never played the 17th game. They never resumed that contest. So both of them, they are the bills are finished the season 13 and three Cincinnati finishes the season 12 and four, as opposed to Kansas city who went 14 and three, as opposed to Jacksonville who went nine and eight, both of those, of course, adding up to 17. So they wound up doing it by win percentage. And of course it mathematically all still works out because if you win a higher percentage of your games, that's, you deserve to be the number one seed. I feel like like that's how the NBA does it in regards to conference seeding. The NFL's playoff seeding is entirely fucked up, but let's go ahead and just blaze through this. So in the AFC, one through seven, Kansas City earned the first round by with their crushing victory over the Raiders on Sunday. You then have Buffalo, Cincinnati, Jacksonville, who snuck in there beating Tennessee for the division crown, the LA Chargers, the Baltimore Ravens, and the Miami Dolphins. And for the NFC, we have the Philadelphia Eagles at number one, earning the first round by, followed by San Francisco, Minnesota, Tampa Bay, Dallas, the Giants, the New York football Giants, and the Seattle Seahawks. So right off the bat, um, I got to come out and just totally disrespect the Minnesota Vikings because I do not feel that they are a legitimate championship contender. I do not feel that they are as good as they play as they've been playing this year largely because I don't believe that Kirk Cousins is a Super Bowl caliber quarterback and I've talked about this before when you look at some of the other quarterbacks that are going up 
in the postseason. Jalen Hurts, <clears throat> Kansas City, Buffalo, uh, Josh Allen, Patrick Mahomes. I totally just fucking forgot the names of their quarterbacks. When you look, yeah, Jalen Hurts, Mahomes, um, Josh Allen, Joe Burrow, Dak Prescott. I mean, fuck, I'll even give you like Tom Brady at this stage. I will give you Geno Smith at this stage over Kirk Cousins. Um, someone similar, someone in a similar situation to him is Brock Purdy. But of course I will talk about San Francisco. They are an entirely different team. They are a significantly better built team than the, um, Minnesota Vikings. But I guess I'll just start in the AFC cause it's easy. Either any of these three teams, Minnesota, not Minnesota, God damn it. Kansas city, Buffalo and Cincinnati, I think are without a doubt the three best teams in the AFC. I really don't know if any upsets are going to come out of this bracket. You have I'm really an upset I guess would be the Chargers over the Jaguars because technically they are the underdog Los Angeles is, but I think that just comparatively a fully healthy Chargers team is waxing the Jacksonville Jaguars who are only in that spot because of their division title. I mean, they have a worse record than the Los Angeles Chargers. I think that Justin Herbert, although he's been kind of mid this year, hasn't really looked like the, hasn't really looked like the, hasn't really looked like himself or what we expected him to look like. But also you have to take into account that this offense really outside of Austin Eckler has been decimated by interest by injuries. There's been a significant amount of inconsistency. And of course, when you have a young quarterback, that's going to fuck with them. So thank God he had Austin Eckler. And also, yeah, thank God that there was all this inconsistency because I wrote Austin Eckler to a finally to a fantasy football championship. But I do think that the Chargers, regardless of their dog shit defense, have a chance to upset again, quote unquote, upset Jacksonville. But they'll, of course, go up against Kansas City and anything can happen in that game. But before I get too far ahead of myself, you have Cincinnati taking on Baltimore. I think that the Ravens offense is simply not good enough to contend with Cincinnati, um, Kansas City, and Buffalo. They 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 stink. They stink straight up. They do not have enough weapons on the outside to offset, you know, or to enhance the threat that is Lamar Jackson. And of course, Lamar Jackson is a he's an exceptionally talented quarterback, but like Mark Andrews hasn't really looked that great. They still have don't they still don't have a number one on the outside, like they are run heavy and they are very easy to game plan against because they don't have a lot of a lot of dynamics. And listen, the way that Joe Burrow has been slinging the football recently, that man is on a mission. He's looking like he can take Cincinnati to the Super Bowl. Like everything that he was working through in the beginning of the season seems to be behind him. And they're they're cooking. Jamar Chase as well started to come alive towards the end of the year. You still got Joe Mixon. And then, of course, the 2-7 matchup is Buffalo and Miami. I think that, you know, Buffalo is arguably the best and most complete team in football. The second-best scoring offense, the second-best defense in the league going by points allowed per game. They are a they are undeniably a Super Bowl contender. They have the chance to be a Super Bowl champion as well which is great for the state of New York, but I, I don't think this will come as a surprise to anybody. I foresee another Bills-Chiefs matchup in the postseason. This time it would come in the conference finals or in the uh, yeah in the, in the uh, AFC championship game. Pardon me, not the conference finals. I'm still thinking about the NBA. But either one of these teams can beat each other. I am hesitant to go with Buffalo simply because the Kansas City Chiefs have Patrick Mahomes. I understand their defense is iffy, 
I understand that they don't really have the same caliber of weapons that they have had on the outside, but you got Travis Kelsey, you got Patrick Mahomes. It's so difficult to bet against Mahomes, who looks like he's going to bring home yet another NFL MVP, best quarterback in football. And, you know, when you have two high caliber offenses like you do with the Bills and with the Chiefs, those games are going to be shootouts. They are not going to be defensive slug matches. They are not going to be grind fests. They're going to be, it's going to be 28-24, 32-29, 37-34, whatever the fuck the final score of the game was last year. That's what you're looking at. And when you're going up against that type of team, you have to have a guy who can put points on the board. And Patrick Mahomes puts points on the board as quickly and as efficiently as anybody else, even when he is being loosey-goosey with the rock, even when he is turning the ball over, he, you are not safe from him. You can have a three-score lead going into halftime, and he will come back and throw for like 400 yards in the second half, which is, I think is what happened uh, the first time they played the Raiders. I remember Mahomes was playing like dog shit, and then he absolutely smoked them in the second half. Half, but that's what you're, that's what you're looking at. So again, I'm a simp for the Kansas City Chiefs. I'm a simp for Patrick Mahomes. I am. I expect Kansas City to come out of the AFC. I would also like not be surprised if Buffalo beat them because Buffalo did beat them earlier in the year. They capitalized on Patrick Mahomes's mistakes. They have the versatility on defense to frazzle him. And when you frazzle Patrick Mahomes, when you frazzle really any quarterback, they're more prone. To make mistakes like you can't just let him sit in the pocket much like you can't just let Josh Allen sit in the pocket but if those games do come down to defense Buffalo has the clear advantage just from the front seven to the back four they are an elite defense they are one to be reckoned with but I still think that Patrick Mahomes will pull it out simply because I think that that game will be a tremendous amount of offense now I'm gonna switch over to the NFC as I mentioned Philly gets the bye you then have, um, they will be going up against the winner of Dallas and Tampa Bay. I think that Dallas as an underdog is fucking stupid because Dallas is one of the elite teams in the NFC. Again, the way that the NFL does their seeding with the division champions and the wild card is simply stupid because you have a whole, you have two divisions in the NFC. You have the NFC South where every team was 500 or worse. And then you have the NFC East where every team was 500 or better. You can't look me in the eyes and say that the Washington commanders don't deserve to be in the playoffs over Tampa Bay simply because of the fact that Tampa Bay has underachieved all season. And I think that Tampa Bay will get absolutely smoked by Dallas. Dallas is a very, very solid team. I hate to give them props because I fucking despise them as a Giants fan, but Dak Prescott is an elite quarterback. CeeDee Lamb is an elite number one. He's proven himself to be a number one receiver in this league. You have Ezekiel Elliott and Tony Pollard, who are two of the, who is one of the best duos in football right now. The defense is great as well with Trevon Diggs, with Micah Parsons. Like they have all of the makings of a championship caliber team. I also think someone mentioned on the internet, I forget if it was on TikTok or Twitter, but Dallas is Dallas has the best record against plus five hundred teams. They have the best record in the NFC against plus five hundred teams with their only loss being against the Eagles when they were without Dak. I didn't fact check that. I don't know if it was true, but I do know that Dallas has played exceptionally well all year. They were only two games back of they're only two games behind Philly, with one of those losses being to Philly, they are, you know, I'm reluctant to say a Super Bowl contender 
just because of my, you know, my preconceived biases against them. But I would be remiss not to acknowledge them as a legitimate force in these playoffs. We then shift to the Giants and the Vikings. And I mentioned this off top. I do not like the Vikings at all. They are drastic overachievers. I think there was that someone mentioned that one stat where if all of the one possession games in the NFL had gone the other way, Minnesota would be 1-14. Their offense is super dynamic. I understand that. You have Justin Jefferson, who's the best receiver in football right now, as far as I'm concerned. You do have Dalvin Cook, who's a solid running back, but the defense is dog shit, and Kirk Cousins is just slightly above mid. I do not think that they are a Super Bowl a Super Bowl caliber team. I do think that they have a legitimate chance to beat the Giants only because the Giants offense is so inept that you know, there is really no reason for Minnesota not to spank them. But let's not forget that the Giants put up a fight against the Vikings a few years ago, at least if I remember that correctly. It was on what? Christmas Eve when we got fucking blessed with that game. Um, yeah, 27, 24-27, the Giants lost. You know, it can go either way. And, I, you know, I've been in this boat as a Giants fan before. I've watched this team win two Super Bowls, being a below-average team I do not feel the same about this year's squad unfortunately um, because they are just significantly more average than they were in 2007 and 2011 both of those years the defense was absolutely stacked they got to the postseason by way of their defense and I feel like back then NFL offenses were not as dynamic you didn't have as many like air raid schemes you didn't have this era of college football quarterbacks who are accustomed to throwing the ball 35 40 45 times I mean this is way before the likes of Mahomes Justin Herbert Kyler Murray um, Lamar Jackson like the offenses were just less dynamic but even if the Giants defense was better than it was you still have Daniel Jones at quarterback and I understand that you have Saquon Barkley in the backfield alongside him but I do not see Daniel Jones as a good quarterback. Let me rephrase that. I do not see him as a good playoff quarterback. And I've talked about this in the past when the Giants were overachieving. They have overachieved this year, undeniably, but they did so in spite of Daniel Jones, not because of him. Because in the playoffs, you need a guy who can drop back and throw the ball 35, 37, 40 times per game and who can do so efficiently and a guy who can just make plays. Say what you will about Eli Manning. And there's a lot you can say about Eli Manning. This dude, that dude was a playmaker. He was a gunslinger. His fearlessness in the pocket is what helped the Giants beat the Patriots both of those Super Bowls. Daniel Jones, as great as he is on his feet, does not strike fear in opposing, in opposing defenses like Eli Manning does, or like Eli Manning did. And I think also some of that has to do with the fact that the Giants are exceptionally thin at receiver. I don't want to be that guy, but if you took Justin Jefferson or Jamar Chase and put him on the Giants, this team is significantly better. Because obviously, you know, I don't think you would have Saquon Barkley and Justin Jefferson. That'd be fucking super OP. But even a running back who's a little bit less than Saquon Barkley. You got both of those guys. I mean, Daniel Jones is a capable quarterback at times and he would be way more capable if he had a demon like Justin Jefferson on the perimeter but they don't have that unfortunately and I don't foresee them having this Cinderella run um, and that really that really sucks but I also believe that they should never have been here in the first place finally wrapping up the first round games Seattle and San Francisco I did not think that San Francisco was this legit 
Um, I feel totally stupid about that. They are, without a doubt, capable of being a dark horse Super Bowl team. And I feel like that's really that's really disrespectful to say to them as the second seed. But on paper, outside of their defense, like they are the reverse of every other team that can go to a Super Bowl because they do not have an elite caliber quarterback. Like Kansas City does, like Buffalo does, like Dallas does, like Philly does. They don't have that. And yet they are better on they are better <clears throat> statistically than all of those teams except for Philly and Kansas City, which is insane to me. It highlights how just fucking demonic their defense is above anything else. I mean, also, you got Debo Samuel, you got Brandon Ayuk. The trade for Christian McCaffrey was incredible. You have Eli Mitchell as well. You have a solid duo in the backfield. And they're doing this without Jimmy G. And no disrespect to Brock Purdy, but who the fuck thought that this dude was going to come into the NFL and look as good as he does right now? He is as good, if not better, than Jimmy Garoppolo, which is really, which is really insane to say that Brock Purdy can come in and in seven games, I think it is, in seven games, throw for 1,300 yards and 13 touchdowns to only four interceptions while maintaining a completion percentage of 67%. I don't know if he will, you know, get cold feet in the playoffs, but I mean, I think that it's, you know, you cannot put it past San Francisco at this point. You also cannot put it past them to get upset by Seattle because Seattle is one of those teams that if they start cooking, they will continue to cook. You got Geno Smith, who for a while looked like he was making an MVP case. Don't know how legitimate that was, but you never know. Tyler Lockett, DK Metcalf. Ultimately, though, I think that the safest bet for the NFC representative is the Philadelphia Eagles. Much like Buffalo, they are the most complete team in the NFC. Um, I think that they offensively, they are, they are unrivaled. Jalen Hurts, Devontae Smith, A.J. Brown, Miles Sanders is finally playing well. Like they have in they have theoretically the most Super Bowl ready team. And also, not to mention they have an elite defense as well. They've got a couple of lockdown corners. Although they're not the best defense in the NFC, you cannot overlook them. You cannot overlook them. And I know that technically um, San Francisco is the best defense. And they're the sixth best offense. So they are statistically more complete than the Eagles in the playoffs. You need star power. That's just that's how it goes. That's how every sport operates is that when the playoffs roll around, the team with the best the team with the best roster constructed around their premier guy is more likely than not going to go going to have the best luck in the postseason. And I do not think that San Francisco has that quite yet. If they do decide to rock with Brock Purdy long time, long term, and he continues to ball out like this, anything's possible. But I think that we are on a crash course for a Philadelphia Eagles, Kansas City Chiefs Super Bowl. I think that would be a fantastic contest. I, I truly do. You have two MVP, you have arguably the two MVP front runners going at it. A lot of offense potentially. Um, and, you know, I really, I really don't want to, I don't want to pick the Eagles because again, they have, because again, they don't have Patrick Mahomes, but if this were, fuck it, man, I'm going to rock with the Eagles. 
I'm, I'm going to rock with the Eagles this year. I think the Eagles bring home the Super Bowl trophy this year over the Kansas City Chiefs. And I, I love the Chiefs a lot. I, I They are one of the most entertaining shows in sports right now. But, you know, that defense is lacking a little bit. There is a little bit of inconsistency there. If they get it right, you know, you give Andy Reid a couple of weeks to game plan against a certain team, anything is possible. And I'm and that's why I'm reluctant to choose again to pick against them. I just feel that the Eagles are primed for a Super Bowl this year. That's that. Uh, we're going to shift focus now to the worst piece of news that I've received within the last couple of days. That is of course the news of my guy Kevin Durant going down with an MCL sprain. Of course, Thank fucking Christ. Thank fucking Christ that this is not as severe as last year. So on Sunday, I think it was, the Nets were taken on the Miami Heat. And there was a play involving Jimmy Butler and Kevin Durant, wherein Butler dove at Kevin Durant trying to get a swipe. It is neat. No, hold on. You know, fuck it. Let's read the article. Brooklyn Nets star Kevin Durant is expected to be sidelined for approximately a month. Sources told Woj on Monday, the Nets announced that Durant was diagnosed with an isolated MCL sprain of his right knee and will be evaluated in two weeks. Durant missed six weeks with the left M MCL sprain beginning in January last season, but there's confidence that this is less severe. This is a less severe injury that won't sideline the MVP candidate more than four weeks. Durant sustained the injury in the third quarter of the Nets 102-101 victory over the Miami Heat on Sunday. <laughs> the, the injury occurred with 105 left in the third as Heat swingman Jimmy Butler went to the rim and got a shot blocked by Ben Simmons. Butler fell back into Durant's knee and Durant stayed on the ground for a few moments but remained in the game. Durant kept rubbing at the knee up and down the floor and was taken out when the Nets called a timeout about 30 seconds later. He walked straight to the locker room to get checked out and did not return. This isn't the first time he has dealt with the knee issue. He injured the MCL in his left knee during a January 15th win in 2022 over the New Orleans Pelicans and had to miss more than a, than, had to miss more than a month and a half while rehabbing. That was, of course, a fucking league-altering move because had it not been for, I believe it was Herb Jones, who pushed, no, yes, Herb Jones pushed Bruce Brown into Kevin Durant, obviously not maliciously or anything, but he extended that arm. Bruce Brown fell back into Kevin Durant that he I and Brown landed on his knee, sprained it, and that effectively ruined the Nets campaign on top of everything else that had gone on. The Nets, who were 27 and 15 at the time and still playing with Kyrie Irving on a part-time basis because of the NYC vaccine mandate, were five and eleven in Durant's absence. Durant also missed over a month in 2017. Um, so that about clears up the article. Now, this is not all doom and gloom. I haven't really been on Twitter recently, so I don't know what the general consensus is among Nets fans, but I did have a friend reach out to me the day that on Monday when KD got the MRI and he said, bro, the season is absolutely cooked. And I thought that, you know, he sprained something in his knee. I thought it was an MC, like an ACL tear, a meniscus tear, something like that. And learning that it was an isolated sprain, I don't know what the fuck that means, but probably something less severe. Um, I kind of was relieved. I saw him to be reevaluated in two weeks. I'm like, he's not coming back in two weeks. Definitely not. He's going to be out for a about a month. 
I reckoned. And that seems to be the consensus among the Nets staff. Of course, something that contributed to Brooklyn keeping him out last year was I think that they kind of knew last season was a wash between everything going on with Ben Simmons, between all of the between all of the shit going on with Kyrie, I feel like they knew that it was not the it was not their season that year. They rested Kevin Durant for a little longer than they had to just to be a little extra cautious, which, you know, so goes it in the NBA, unfortunately. But I think that this is, you know, it sucks, obviously, that Kevin Durant is not going to be with the Nets for however long. It's definitely going to be a difficult stretch for them. I think it should lead into the All-Star break. He should, if the timeline adds up, it is January 9th, January 10th at this time of recording. January 10th at this time of recording. A month puts us at about the weekend leading up to Valentine's Day, which is generally when the NBA All-Star break is. So he'll get like an extra free week of rest as well. So we should be all good. Now, why I'm not as apprehensive about this injury is for one reason and one reason only. This team is fundamentally different to how it was last season. A lot of which being the result of Jacques Vaughn. This team is an elite defensive unit, which means that this team can rely on their defense when their offense is not humming along. We've seen it multiple times this year. They played a a fucking grind fest against Miami, holding Miami to 101 points. I understand Miami's not the most dynamic offense, but it's very rare to see games like that in today's NBA because everyone is so talented. It's like long gone are the days of teams of elite defensive teams holding their opponents to fewer than 100 points. It's just not the case. But Nick Claxton looks like a defensive player of the year guy. He looks like he could be first team all defense. Ben Simmons is still a good defender. You have Royce O'Neal. You've got a cohesive unit on that end who wants to compete defensively. They're giving effort defensively. They have bought in to whatever Jacques Vaughn has cooked up. And please, for the love of God, continue to let this man cook. They've bought into it. So even when KD has not been playing well or shooting well, even when Kyrie has not been shooting well, everything has been relatively fine. I'm just going to go to NBA.com and pull up some of these defensive stats over the last, like, let's say 15, let's say 15 games or so. Over these last 15 games, of which Brooklyn is 14-1, and they have a defensive rating of 111.7, which is the sixth best total in the league. We're going to do this same thing with points allowed per game. So 15-game stretch, of which Brooklyn is 14-1. and Opponents are averaging 111.5 points. Now, this is the, this is the biggest like stretch from 20, 30 years ago. The sixth best team and the sixth best defensive team in 2000 is not holding is not holding their opponents to 112 points a night. Miami is the best team in this is the best defense over this stretch at 107 points allowed per game. So Brooklyn can lean on their defense. It is going to be gritty. It's going to be difficult for them. Of course, they still have Kyrie Irving. Fortunately, and they still have other guys who can contribute offensively. Thank God. Because I have no, I there is no part of me 
that wants to watch this team play these games without Kevin Durant. Because, one, Kevin Durant is incredibly fun to watch, and he was playing like an MVP before this happened. But a lot of the times, the offense is just, like, kind of boring and is saved by the flair and the theatrics that Kyrie and KD bring to the table. Like, we're just going to take a look at this. We're just going to take a look at the scoring leaders for this team over the last 14 games. KD's about at about 29 Kyrie's at 28. There is a severe drop-off to Nick Claxton at 12, who, of course, gets a majority of those points spoon-fed to him from KD and Kyrie. Next is TJ Warren, who's giving you 10 points tonight. He's your fourth-leading scorer. Then it's Patty Mills, Seth Curry, Royce O'Neal. Of course, these three guys are all, again, getting their points off of passes from Kyrie, Ben Simmons. So I don't really think like any of their numbers are going to change. I am very, I am very excited, however— to see how TJ Warren steps up in this role because he's giving Brooklyn he's giving Brooklyn 10 points in 20 minutes. Well, I don't even know what the fuck I went to basketball reference for. If we adjust this to per 36, which is a which is a seriously like similar amount of minutes that TJ Warren might be seeing, he's up to 18. That is good enough to help keep this offense afloat while Kevin Durant is absent. Of course, you're not going to see them dumping on teams like how they used to. You're not going to be able to see them come back from big deficits late in the game. Or if they're down 15 at halftime, it's going to be significantly harder for them to come back. But it's this is not a reason to panic. They This is something that they can withstand. This is something that tons of other teams have withstood before. I mean, you look at the Warriors. The Warriors are... Hold on. Let's go... I want to see the Warriors' record over the last 10 games because they have not been with Steph Curry, and they have seemingly figured it out. Where the fuck are we? Over the last 10, ga- over the last 10 games, Golden State is 6-4 and four without Steph Curry, which... You know, that is a huge piece to lose. And they don't have somebody like Kyrie. Like, Jordan Poole is great, and Clay is great, and Draymond is great, but they are not Kai, they are not Steph. But what they do have is a unit on which on which they can rely on their defense, and they are also, again, they're exceptionally coached. They've bought in to Steve Kerr. So I don't feel that this is all doom and gloom. I do not feel that Brooklyn is going to go on a skid like how they've gone on last year. When KD went out. Another thing that I'm very interested to see is the development of Ben Simmons in this circumstance. And this is a fantastic circumstance for Ben Simmons to be in. Because if we remember, many, many moons ago, it seems like, back before, you know, the world changed, back before the COVID pandemic, back before Ben Simmons was the laughing stock of the NBA. This was a kid who was tasked with leading the Philadelphia 76ers in Joel Embiid's absence. And he did that pretty well, giving them 18 points a night, 20 points a night, allowing the offense to seem like it's its old self, keeping everything from crashing and burning. And that was with him being the number one on those teams. Well, arguably the number one on those teams. And, you know, Philly managed to get through it. And losing Joel Embiid is a colossal loss. Now, Ben Simmons is not going to be able to 
rely on Kevin Durant and Kyrie to bail him out. And I do still feel that there is some reluctance on his part to be more assertive. I do feel that, you know, he has improved over the year. And I don't think it's a psychological thing. I think it's a hierarchical thing because he doesn't, he knows as a playmaker and as a very intelligent basketball player that the team is at its best when KD and Kyrie are allowed to cook. And Ben does not want to take shots from them. He also doesn't want to take shots from Seth Curry. He doesn't want to take shots from Watanabe. He doesn't want to take shots from the myriad of elite three-point shooters on the line or spacing the floor. He doesn't want to he doesn't want to muck up what's working. But now, now is the chance for him to remind us of the type of player that he really is, an aggressive force going downhill when he chooses to be. And once this happens, it will be a lot easier for him to tone back on his aggression than it will be to ramp it up. But if this is a good stretch for him where he is more aggressive and he begins to build confidence, he will be able to turn that aggression on. And that will also allow KD and Kyrie to rest a little bit more because these guys are playing a decent amount of minutes. Kyrie is at 36 over these last 15 games. KD's at 34 over these last 15 games, and these are guys who you want to be fresh for the postseason because they are older. So I do think that if everything, best case scenario, best case scenario, we're going to go and take a look at this upcoming schedule for Brooklyn until the All-Star break. Uh, Where are we? So again, the All-Star break this year is February 15th is the last game Brooklyn plays before the all-Star game. So maybe I would imagine that KD will be back on February 24th against Chicago. If I had to guess, that will give him like six weeks off, but it will be an extra week of, it'll be a week that he already had off. And I don't really think there's any reason to bring him back the game, the game before the All-Star game, because it's just, it's one game. It's whatever. So they play Boston on Thursday. Oklahoma City, San Antonio, Phoenix, Utah, Golden State, Philly, Detroit, New York, the Lakers, Boston again, the Wizards, the Clippers, the Suns, the Bulls again, the Sixers, the the Knicks, the Heat again, Chicago, and Atlanta. If I'm being charitable, I think they'll beat Oklahoma City. I think they'll beat San Antonio. I think they'll beat Phoenix as well because Phoenix is kind of going through it. Um, I think they'll beat Detroit. I think they'll beat the Knicks at least once. I think they'll beat the Lakers. I think they'll beat the Wizards. Um, I do think that since they are playing two games against Phoenix, I think they will lose one of those two games against Phoenix, but whatever. I think they'll beat the Bulls. Um, I think they'll beat the Bulls once. I don't think they beat Miami again, and I think they beat Atlanta. So we're at 3, 6, I forgot how to count. We're at 3, 6, 7, 8, 9. Nine nine wins against one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven losses. So you're looking at a near five hundred record. I think this is the most likely scenario is a near five hundred record with Kevin Durant out. And that will of course put them at let's see, twenty seven plus nine is thirty thirty six. And then they will be thirty six and twenty four, which twelve games twelve games above five hundred is it's pretty good especially in this Eastern Conference. Now, if we want to get a little goofy, you can say that, you know, they don't beat Chicago that one time. 
they you know blow a bunch of these games against against opponents that are lower quality because Brooklyn is known to do that every so often. But I don't think it would be unimaginable to see them go nine and ten or nine and eleven or maybe even ten and ten. You know, who's to say they don't steal a game against Philly or they don't steal a game against Golden State? It's entirely likely that that happens. But again, I'm just trying to remain as optimistic as possible. And my optimism is, again, like almost solely rooted in the fact that Jacques Vaughn is the head coach of this team. And there is a cohesive game plan that all of the guys have bought into, and which is which is fantastic, which is absolutely tremendous. But key things to look out for during this stretch are, of course, TJ Warren's increased usage in the offense. Uh, hopefully, we see the return of Bubble TJ. I would love to see Bubble TJ Warren have like a 45-point outburst against Philly or against Boston or against Miami. I think that would be fucking incredible. And then, of course, Ben Simmons's um, development as well. And still, I think the defense is going to remain elite. But with that, we're going to shift. We're going to begin talking about the Toronto Raptors. Now, the Toronto Raptors are a very interesting team because they're kind of dookie right now. They are, um, I can't remember, but I think they're, they are right about where I picked them to be in my preseason, in my preseason assessment. Currently they're 11th in the Eastern conference. So they're a borderline play in team. I didn't expect them to be as good I can't remember the exact reason why, and I don't want to say it was because the East is loaded, but it's it's because the East is loaded. So right now, Toronto is probably the... Uh, I don't want to say they're the team that's underachieving the most because there are a bunch of teams like Atlanta who's not that great. There's a, bunch, there's a team like Chicago that's not that great. Uh, Portland, nah, I don't know about Portland. Minnesota is definitely the biggest flop this year, 100%. So. Toronto Raptors fans, hear me out. Your team is definitely underachieving this year, but at least you are not the Minnesota Timberwolves who have Anthony Edwards, Carl Anthony Towns, and traded for Rudy Gobert and are still under 500 somehow. So at least Raptors fans can take solace in that. But still, this team is 17 and 23 after being 48 and 34 last year. And you may look to yourself, this team, with Spicy P, Fred Van Vliet, Nick Nurse is a fantastic coach. Masai Ujiri is a competent general manager. This team that was the fifth best team in the Eastern Conference last season was better than the Brooklyn Nets, if I'm not mistaken, that pushed Philly to six games and actually looked like, oh yeah, they were way better than Brooklyn last year. I can't believe I, I, can't believe I forgot about that. This same team that pushed Philly to six games in the playoffs. And like there was a legitimate chance that people thought there would be an upset. Why does this team stink? And this team stinks this year, not because of what they did, but it's because of what everybody else did around them. When you look at the landscape of this year's Eastern Conference, there is no way that Toronto could have expected to be among the top-tier teams in the conference when they didn't do anything noteworthy. The roster is largely unchanged from the year before. I want to see... So Basketball Reference has this roster continuity tracker, which I think is a fascinating... Which I think is absolutely fascinating because it shows year over year how 
what percentage of minutes from the previous team are on this year's team. Now, there are a lot of colors here, and I'm going to do my best to not ADHD out. But Toronto is has 87% of their minutes returning. Their new players include Christian Coloco, Juancho Hernan Gomez, um, Otto Porter Jr., who's only played 146 minutes. He only recently came back from his uh, injury or whatever the fuck he was dealing with. But again, a large percentage of this roster is largely unchanged from the previous year. And when you look at teams like Cleveland, for example, who added Donovan Mitchell, had arguably the best offseason in the NBA. You look at a team like Indiana, who is playing way beyond anyone's expectations, but they have Tyrese Halliburton. They got Benedict Matherin. You have Miles Turner. Of course, Miles Turner has been on the team, but they are they're a legit team in the East, Indiana, and they got more playmakers than Toronto does. You look at the Knicks, who went ahead and added Jalen Brunson, a tremendous grab for them. And then, of course, you look at all of the other teams who were already elite beforehand. Boston, Milwaukee, Philly. Uh, Miami was elite last year, not that great this year, but still better than Toronto. And then, of course, you sprinkle in the Brooklyn Nets, who were getting a healthy Ben Simmons. We're getting Kyrie without any drama that would prevent him. Well, I, I can't even say that because he was still not with the team this year. But you get Kyrie, who for a majority of the season has not brought the dramatics. And then, of course, you have Kevin Durant, who's playing at the highest level, that arguably the highest level he's ever played at. Toronto simply did not do enough this year or this offseason to contend with every other team. And I mean, Pascal has been great. Fred Van Vliet has been great. Gary Trent has been great. Ananobi's been great. Scotty Barnes has been great. But still, this team did not bring in a bucket getter. And that is very I test Twitter of me to say. I fucking hate talking in vague platitudes like that. But their offense absolutely stinks. They are one of the worst offenses in the NBA. They're 26th in scoring. 26th in scoring and 16th in efficiency. 16th in efficiency is not bad, but they're average. They're not an elite offense by any stretch of the imagination however. And compared to last year, you know, that was much of the same. However, there was not that much firepower in the East that they had to go up against. And you look at their efficiency numbers, 28th in total field goal percentage, 29th in three-point percentage, 29th in two-point percentage. The only place that they're really successful at is the free throw line. And they do get a lot of free throws, which is great, but they get a lot of free throws because they have to. They have to attack the basket because no one on this roster can shoot. I mean, Malachi Flynn and Gary Trent and Otto, Otto Porter are all great shooters. I have their numbers up on screen right now. But, you know, 36%, 35% is not really it's not really cutting it. It's just, it's just how the league is created now. And I just want to get back to the thing I said about a bucket getter. So... If you look at any elite team in the NBA, they have a guy, at least one guy, whom they can put the ball in the hands of, and they will make something happen. Jason Tatum, Giannis. I mean, Giannis is like not really a bucket getter, but he's the most dominant player in the league right now, so you can't not talk about him. And of course, he is way ahead of everybody on 
Toronto's roster. Very similar to how LeBron was in his career, but I'm rambling. So you look at Jason Tatum. You look at Donovan Mitchell. You look at Kevin Durant. You look at Luka. You look at Devin Booker when healthy. You look at Brandon Ingram when healthy. You look at fucking... I, I'm running out of names. I'm sorry. I'm run, I've, run, I've run out of names. But you even look at a guy like Jimmy Butler as well, who's not really a bucket getter but can get buckets. You're talking about adept scorers who take and make what the defense gives them. And Toronto does not have that. As great of a player as Pascal Siakam is, averages 26 a night, 6.5 assists, 8 rebounds. I think he'll be an all-star this year. I do not see him as a as a bucket getter. But he gets buckets. Like, don't get me wrong. Pascal gets buckets. But his efficiency is kind of eh. 47% overall is fine, but it's brought down by 34% from three. But he doesn't have go-to moves on offense. Fred Van Vliet does not have go-to moves on offense that the, that the Raptors can rely on. Throughout the course of the season, Gary Trent does not have that. Scotty does not have that, although things could change because Scotty is still very young. But Toronto simply does not have the the offensive capabilities of these other teams in the East. And that is what's hampering them more than anything else, is that they are they are beyond inept offensively, and no game plan will be able to salvage that because their players are very limited. And it sucks to say. But I think that this is something that Raptors fans are kind of beginning to notice and that this team went to the finals in, in 2020, won the finals in 2020, pardon me, um, 2020, no, 2019, I'm sorry, went to the finals and won the finals in 2019 with a roster that theoretically did not look much different than this. But who did they have instead? Kawhi Leonard. And what is Kawhi Leonard? Kawhi Leonard is a robot who can carry an offense. He can sustainably carry an offense because his because his skill set has evolved so much over the years. Uh, it's not to say that Pascal cannot evolve, although he is 28, so I think that he's basically at his ceiling. That's not to say that Scotty Barnes certainly cannot develop into a guy like that because he he undeniable he 100% can. They it's just at this point they do not have that guy. They do not have that guy. And it has spawned conversations about what are they going to do with this team? How does management go about all of this? Because as it stands, you're looking at a team who, again, three years ago, four years ago now technically because we're in 2023, four years ago won the finals and has been like, you know, it a playoff bound team since then. And now they've fallen off a cliff because everybody else around them has improved so much. I think naturally they are just at the end of the line because I don't feel that there is any way they can swing a trade for another star that does not inherently compromise the 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 current foundation of this team because opposing GMs know that if Toronto wants to contend they need another star and I get that, you know, a lot of the GMs in the NBA aren't that smart, but they understand how leverage works and Toronto is not going to have any leverage in any of these situations because yes they could trade pascal but i don't think they would want to because he's still an all-star caliber player and you can pair him with scotty barnes over the next couple of years and see what happens although spicy p may not want that for his career but fred van vliet i don't know if anyone's going to take it i don't know if anyone is going to bite on a dude 
who is shooting below 40% from the field this year. I mean, Gary Trent Jr. is a nice role player who can fit on many a different team because he is a floor spacer, and that is, of course, something that everybody needs nowadays. And I also don't think they're going to trade OG because OG is still only 25 and is one of, the one of if not the best perimeter defenders in the NBA. So they're stuck in this weird rut, almost. I do, however, think that management will at some point decide to blow it up. And by blow it up, I mean trade everybody that is not named Scotty Barnes. I feel that that is a legitimate possibility. Like, they go, they return to Monk and field a team that has a, that has a roster resembling an expansion team roster. Like, it's going to look like when they just entered the NBA. With Scotty Barnes and a bunch of fucking G Leaguers, they're gonna go like eight and seventy-four, but have a collection of draft picks and a stockpile of young talent that they're gonna tuck away in the G League. But yeah, I would not be surprised if management, if Raptors management recognizes that hey, we're kind of in purgatory. We're not good enough to contend. We're not bad enough to tank. There's really nothing more for us to do. And also, like, a lot of these guys, their value is at their highest because of how this current season is going for them. Like, these dudes are putting up numbers. It's just it's not translating to any success for the team. Like, Spicy P has tremendous trade value. Fred Van Vliet has decent trade value, except I'm trying to think of what his contract was. And that might be the one thing that prevents anything from happening. Um, I'm lying. He, saw, he is in the final guaranteed year of his contract with the player option for next year. So not the worst, not the worst contract we've seen. Definitely not, but still is a team going to bite on that? I'm not really sure. So yeah, that's about, uh, that's about it for my rant on the Toronto Raptors. Their offense just stinks right now. Defensively, they're great, but their offense is not good enough to contend with the rest of the firepower in the East. So with that, we're going to shift to the last thing that I wanted to talk about today. Now, I've been feeling down in the dumps recently. Uh, you know, just life stuff, shit happens. Um, so, <laughs> I went to the only guy who could make me feel better. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is the premier alpha male, Nicholas Aunt Nicholas. Adams, Tr President Trump's favorite author. <laughs> this guy is, he is tremendous content. He is just, I wish that he had a YouTube channel because the type of thing, the, the things I would do for this man to get a YouTube channel and turn into like a Manosphere YouTuber is in is innumerable i think is the word but man like so nick adams is an australian dude an australian hog who is i guess now living in the united states uh he's a grifter he's a conservative grifter he's a trump dick rider he's awesome though so, like a lot remember guys a lot of these conservative freaks are just content that's it they've got content brain and that's all that matters so he uh, he originally burst onto the scene tweeting things about 
athletes, like talking about how John Stockton and Larry Bird are the two greatest players of all time. How how John Stockton is better. How fuck, I can't even contain myself. How John Stockton and Bob Cousy are better than Steph Curry and Dwayne Wade and all these guys. And how Ennis Freedom is the greatest center who has ever lived and that it is uh it is a crime against humanity that he is not in the NBA um except for the fact that this man literally cannot defend anything I think that I could drop 15 on Enos Cantor despite the fact that I'm a foot and a half short, shorter than he is but now he is all in on the alpha male stuff and man I'll tell you this is some of the greatest posting that I have ever seen on Twitter like this is up with this is drill level content like it we're just going to we're going to I'm just not even going to pick the hits because these are all of the hits like I hate to compare this I hate to compare Nick Adams to Rage Against the Machine but like Rage Against the Machine has 3 albums and every track on every, every track on all of those albums is a banger every time that Nick Adams posts it's a banger look at his pinned tweet alpha male new year checklist bible check Fortnite controller in the trash President Trump NFT on display. Check. Nick Adams cameo booked. Check. You are not going to find this type of content anywhere else. Like this is just him not even having to really think about what he's posting. This is natural because he believes so much of this, which makes it even better. And I fully believe that he is a Trump NFT, which makes it even better. And I wholly believe and I wholly know that no one is booking a Nick Adams cameo. And yet this guy posted this tweet, this 455 like tweet as his pinned tweet. Like, oh, these are from today, actually. I'm so tired of leftists shoving their politics into sports. Famously, athletes are always talking about leftist values like Medicare for all and free college. I loved when, <laughs> I loved when after the game on Monday night, Kyrie Irving was in the press conference talking about how we have to end all of the illegal wars in the Middle East and how we have to begin to tax billionaires. I loved, I loved when Steph Curry had a FaceTime with Bernie Sanders and that was all, that was all he was talking about during his halftime interview. I love that. Your triggers are your responsibility. It isn't the world's obligation to tiptoe around them. I'm reading some of these. And I, I want them to be turned into postcards or like tweets that have a pretty border. And it's in this, I, I want these to be put on a piece of wood with a flower border in the live, laugh, love font. Or in the life is what happens between coffee and wine font. This is what I need in my life. I need these. I need these for my home. because. They are just so, so ridiculous. I had I sent this one to my friend this morning. Oh my god, it was, dude. He was talking about Hooters, the Green Bay Packers, and the Detroit Lions. This is, I think, the greatest tweet I've ever seen in my life. Detroit has Hooters, Green Bay does not. You have to wonder if it. <laughs> You have to wonder if this had an impact on the game tonight between the Lions and Packers. Where does Aaron Rodgers go with the boys for alpha bonding? <laughs> Aiden Hutchinson clearly goes to Hooters. Now, 
we're going to fact check this tweet because, man, I have a, a hard time believing that there is no Hooters in Green Bay. Hooters, Green Bay, Wisconsin. I have a hard time believing there is one in Green Bay, Wisconsin. So this is like the trifecta. This is, this is, this is perfect because also Aaron Rodgers should be, this guy should be worshiping the feet that Aaron Rodgers walks on because Aaron Rodgers is fucking deranged. Like his takes on the vaccine, how he was microdosing COVID is something that Nick Adams would salivate over. So again, he's just lying here, which is awesome. Green Bay has Hooters. Detroit has Hooters. Um, although admittedly, like Hooters is kind of mid. Ike, I mean, you know, the wings are okay, but there are better places to get wings. So I don't know. I don't really know the purpose. <laughs> Pick up your Bible, get in your diesel powered truck, go to Hooters. <laughs> Dude. Yo. Uh, <laughs> this is some of the lamest shit. I've ever seen in my life. You're <laughs> Pick up your Bible, get in your diesel-powered truck, and go to Hooters. I'm telling you right now, if I ever went to a Hooters with my friends and they pulled up in their truck and hopped out with the Bible, they would not just scare the hoes. They would scare everybody. Who is... <laughs> I... I can't, bro. I'm sorry. I'm laughing too hard. I'm laughing too hard. There's also this other thing that he loves where he um just like shits on chilies. I unironically, I unironically really fucked with this tweet where he says, do I want to do a two for 20 deal with you with chilies? Absolutely not. An alpha male's choice in food can never be constricted for the sake of savings. I'll order what I want because I am an alpha male. Two for 20 is beta. <laughs> I love this because like Chili's is just so fucking whack. Everything about Chili's is whack. Like in the hierarchy of mid restaurants, like mid casual restaurants, Chili's is all the way at the bottom. Okay. The only place it's not in the bottom are places in are places in states like New York where Denny's is significantly worse than like Denny's in the South. Don't ever go to a Denny's in New York. It's just like gross. You feel, you just like, you feel icky in there, but Denny's in the South very much like never go to a Walmart in a suburban place because you just feel weird. Cause the type of people there aren't like Walmart funny people. They're like Walmart sketchy people. Like they're not rolling, they're not riding around on their scooter with like toilet paper hanging out of the back, looking like the worst cape. They're just like being creepy and schizo, and it's just very uncomfortable. It's not content, unfortunately. I do really fuck with Nick Adams for calling the two for twenty beta though, because like I just fucking despise chilies. There is nothing redeeming about chilies. My fiance loves chilies and she's always fucking bragging about their their chips and I'm like, "Do you understand how how like bare minimum tortilla chips are? Like you literally just drop a tortilla into the fryer." Well, obviously not that. You have to you have to cut it up first, but tortilla chips are literally like 
bare minimum easy to do. It requires no level of culinary excellence. No Michelin star chef is like overcome with anxiety at the thought of having to make a tortilla chip. Like that's why they're good. But like chilies, fuck chilies. Straight up. Um, or so. Foursome with the boys? Let's go, man. I love that Nick Adams is he's gay posting. He he's queer baiting. He wants to have a foursome with the boys. He wants to have a foursome with the boys. Domestic beer in the cart. Ladies away at par three. They hate this. Yeah, dude, you know who hates this? The people that don't get to be in the foursome with Nick Adams. All of the alpha males that don't get to have a foursome with Nick Adams and the boys. That's who hates this tweet. Because, man, those three other guys, there are some Augs who are reading that tweet and they're like, wow, what three lucky dudes are having a foursome? Are having a foursome with Nick Adams. This is another great tweet from him. Dan Campbell is an alpha male coach if he supports President Trump. Um, because, like, unironically... Dan Campbell is like the most Chad quarterback. He's the most Chad quarterback. Dan Campbell is the most Chad coach in the NFL. Huge. He's like 6'5", buff as fuck in absolute tank. Is like, has the perfect goatee. Is like just the right amount of vulnerable to where he's not feminized by a lot of like fake alpha males, I guess. But that's also because he's fucking 6'5 and jacked. But it's only if he supports President Trump. And Nick Adams, who's built like a fucking russet potato, has the nerve, the nerve, the unmitigated gall to caveat Dan Campbell, who literally looks like an alpha male, like looks exactly like the dictionary definition of an alpha male. How dare he caveat this tweet? I am an alpha male. <laughs> Hear me roar with this picture, dog. Oh. No, no, no. I'm so sorry for everyone on audio, but this is a picture of <laughs> of Nick Adams standing in front of the Sydney Opera House with the sunset and the bridge in the background. It looks like a brochure that would go at like the University of Sydney, which is also probably a, an institution that is way too liberal for Nick Adams to talk about. And look at, dude, he's absolutely fucking... Look at him. Look at my boy, man. Look at my man. I got to reset. Oh, my God. I fucked up my Zoom. Oh, no. Okay, we're back. Holy shit. Oh, God, dude. This is... I don't even, like, have a joke to make about this because, I mean, this is a great picture. I don't know who took this, but the photographer did a fantastic job. I love the contrast between the light over the Sydney Opera House and then the darkness over here by the skyline. It's it, it's perfect. It's perfect. Worsome with the boys already talked about that. Um he's talking about fucking beta male prince harry wouldn't last 5 minutes on a high school football field. I mean that's true. He is British. So uh yeah, he's not wrong. Um, uh, yeah, nah, definitely, uh, definitely NFL GMs do not sign Prince Harry. It would be a total disaster. I love the idea of, <clears throat> this is my favorite thing 
that psychotic people on the internet do is they like and i understand like he's totally shit posting uh for what it's worth i do not believe that he believes any of this outside of the stuff with president trump i think that this is a super sensationalized version of himself where he he feels as if he's the main character because everybody is laughing with him when in reality everyone is laughing at him because these tweets are getting a thousand likes and he's got 400 plus he's got 400 he's got 500,000 followers. He's got some of the worst engagement rates that I've seen among like political posters, which really is something to marvel at. And again, it just proves that folks are laughing at him, but I don't think he understands that part. I don't think he understands that he is the clown when he thinks that he is the superhero. That's that's the one thing that does make me kind of sad in this instance because he just doesn't he's not in on the bit that he's crafted urban meyer built a built a team that only took one year to make the playoffs the jags and crud- oh, i don't give a fuck about that um being a str- <laughs> oh my god this one is this is like oh dude this is being a straight white alpha male is the toughest job in america this is unironically something that he definitely believes. And this is like this weird thing that's happened where people, particularly on the right, are like, oh my God, whiteness is being attacked. It's so hard being white now, even though it's like not. I mean, being a straight white man is still the best archetype that you can be born with. And he's like, he's tweeting this. He says this because he can't say slurs. That's really it. That's the only reason he he's saying what he's saying is that he thinks it's tough being a straight white man because he can't say the n-word and because he can't say the f-slur. That's it. I mean, have you heard of like I don't know, people that fucking build bridges? People that work? I'm not talking about like the engineers that build bridges. I'm talking about the laborers that physically build the bridge. Uh welders, people who work retail, people who work in the service industry. It's it's only hard being a straight white straight white male in America if your one job, if the one job that you want to have is to just be racist on a on a mainstream social media platform. The real Josh Allen plays in Jacksonville. What? What does this mean? What does this mean? Oh man. See, like, oh god. Who else will be watching Trevor Lawrence from Hooters tonight? (laughs) So good. It's so good, brother. Oh, man. The left hates this. And it's a picture of wings and curly fries. Yeah, bro. Leftism is when no flats. <laughs> yeah, bro. <laughs> Leftism is when <laughs> is when no mango habanero sauce. Leftism is no beer. <laughs> Just it's so preposterous. He says, "Don't worry, the beer is a Sam Adams Lager, and the wings are hot buffalo." I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I can't, I don't know if I could take this. Oh, Joe Biden has tested positive for trees, and that's a banger. That's one like 
that's when I know that a lot of these tweets are only like shit posts because every so often he actually tweets out something that like a lot of people believe. And while Joe Biden can test positive for a lot of things like being a war criminal and being a fucking dickhead, um, treason. I don't know. I don't know if one of them is is treasonous. The best. Oh, okay. I know, the, dude. Okay, listen. This is right in my wheelhouse because I've spent nine years working in restaurants. This fool tweets out the best job a man can have is being a cook at Hooters. And I know that this man has never once even like set foot on a a kitchen line because there is in no instance should best and cook be in the same sentence together. There is nothing great about being a line cook or about being a fry cook. It literally is probably... I know we were talking about hard jobs like two seconds ago. Being a line cook has got to be, unironically, one of the most difficult jobs on the planet. It's hot. You get paid minimum wage, which makes it fucking worse. You You have to be fucking yelled at by the service, by the servers who work in your restaurant. Now, don't get it twisted. I am, of course, like always super nice to the uh, to the line cook staff whenever I can be because I know how much it sucks. But like literally the worst job, the worst job. Like if you don't ever have to work as a line cook, don't because it is absolutely fucking gut bust. It is gut busting. It is soul crushing. Like being in the food industry in itself is soul crushing. Being on the line, man, that is like you have to be a special fucking type of hustler to work on a line in a restaurant. In a restaurant. He like, oh God. I never did it. Oh fuck out. He's talking about the national anthem. Do you trust Kevin McCarthy? 88% say no. Okay, so he's still. Oh, oh my God. Hold on. Hold on. He's he's talking about the metric system. The metric system is socialist and must be wholly rejected in the USA. China, North Korea, and Canada, some of the most despotic and oppressive nations on earth, use the metric system. To the Democrat cockroaches hell-bent on forcing meters and leaders upon us, I say, hell no. Okay, listen. The imperial system fucking sucks. Okay, I hate, I hate that the United States does not use the metric system when it comes to like cooking and baking. I would much rather just have grams be the standard unit of measurement or like kilograms be the standard unit of measurement. I hate fucking around with pounds. I hate fucking around with fucking... um. What is it? Which one is it? Leader is the metric system. I just hate all of it. It fucking sucks. And also, again, literally every other country uses the metric system. The British did not get a lot of things right. Okay. Driving on the left side of the road. Stupid. Okay. Having instead of having the calendar read month, date, year, they do date, month, year. Absolutely fucking super dumb. But the metric units of measurement are just superior. I will die on this hill. I will die on the hill that the metric 
system is superior. I also do think that Celsius is kind of fucking stupid as well. I don't feel like, I just don't feel like it's an accurate representation of the weather. Like 10 degrees Celsius does not hit the same for me as 50 degrees Fahrenheit. I just feel that that is a more appropriate way to measure the weather. This tweet I have legitimate hatred for. Um, yeah, I think the metric system is great. I think that we need more socialism in the United States, if not for the reason that it just makes people like Nick Adams, the premier alpha male, angry. Also weird of him to mention Canada because the Canadian government is fucking cucked to the United States, which which is awesome. Like, like do you? Canada is the fifty first state. I feel like Canada would apply for statehood. I feel like Canada would be granted statehood before uh, Puerto Rico would be. Um, of course, that's because Puerto Ricans are considered brown in the eyes of the United States government. But like, I could literally do this for hours. Just look at this guy's fucking feed. God, you know, I would love to... The American people did not elect Kamala Harris president. Yeah, no shit, dog. She's the VP. And yeah, I think that we should be able to vote on the vice president. Like, we should pick who the vice president is. If we're going to pick the president, pick the vice president as well. Because, like, it's fucking, it's fucking stupid. It's fucking stupid. We should pick every elected official in the country. Supreme Court justices should be voted on by the people. The president, the vice president, everybody, like obviously not cabinet positions or anything like that, but there are just certain things that the president should not be allowed to appoint without proper input from the people, at least if you want to consider yourself a democracy. That's just me. However, with that said, with this con with Nick out of this Nick Adams gold mine being out of the way, I'm gonna go ahead and call it. Thank you guys so very much for coming to hang out with me today. Everything I'm associated with is down in the description box below. Follow me on Twitter, Instagram. TikTok, subscribe to the YouTube channel. Um, if you like any of the content over there, hit the like button. Turn the bell on as well if you never want to miss an upload. If you're listening to this on an audio platform, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, whatever, leave a rating, leave a review, tell a friend about it if you enjoyed it, tell a friend about it if you didn't enjoy it. And with that, I will catch you all in the next one.